the Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Domo Media. Thank you to Yola Tango, as always, for letting us use their music in the introduction. I hope everyone is staying safe and wearing masks, and I will continue to preach that message as long as it is needed and staying inside. It's just uh, not easy when you have people that have immune disorders, and even though you might feel healthy. These are things that I am greatly concerned about for not just my loved ones, but for everyone that out there, particularly the hospitality industry. So please do your part, wear a mask. If you listen to the last podcast on Thursday, it was uh, just me and Chris Ying having a, what would basically be a normal conversation. Chris and I talk a lot. And besides us being good friends, we work on all things TV and stuff like that. And I thought it was (laughs) the things that we covered were so good that we had to just put it in. It was waiting for Eddie, Eddie Huang. And um, we wanted Eddie Huang on this podcast, number one, because I wanted to talk and explain the Momofuku Chili Crisp in relation to Lao Gan Ma. And if you haven't had Lao Gan Ma, you should. It is easily one of the best condiments out there. I don't know where you could get salsa seca or Salsa matcha. I'm sure someone makes them, but I'm not familiar with them. But you should all be familiar, and they are all stupendous and um, a rich culinary history behind all of them. But um, thankfully, Eddie, you know, Eddie just was having a fun time on a scooter bike in Taipei. And again, man, I wish, I wish things were like it is elsewhere. Um, I was talking to my friend who's in Italy and the Italians to him, who's American, were like, what the hell's wrong with America? As life begins to go back to normal. I think I just read today, Lombardy, Italy, the epicenter of the coronavirus pandemic has had zero deaths the past five days. And we are just not even close to that. So to hear Eddie talk about his amazing time he's basically having in Taipei, I'm really happy for him. And it basically just leaves us a benchmark of where we should hopefully get to sooner rather than later. And big shout out to all the frontline healthcare workers and essential industry that are making this all happen. But um, we finally got Eddie on, and I thought it was one of the best conversations I've ever been part of. We really go in deep about what I think what it means to be Asian American, and um, I think of no one better to express a lot of these concerns and future forward things than Eddie. If you don't know, he's a trained lawyer, he's polymath, he's good at just about everything, and I think he has a wicked sharp grasp of a lot of these complexities, and uh, I just wanted to sort of have a conversation with him, and I, I hope you guys appreciate the conversation that you're about to hear. Thank you again for always supporting us and listening, but this is the chunk of our conversation that Eddie recorded probably like two in the morning. So it wasn't easy for him to do it. So again, thank you, Eddie. And um, here is the conversation with Eddie Huang in Taipei, Taiwan, with myself and Chris Yang. We got the man himself. He's here. Yo, I'm excited. This is a topic I've been very, very excited to talk to Dave about for a while. Yeah. I think it's going to be very, very productive for for everybody. (laughs) So, I mean, frankly, 
Before we get into it, can we ask you just to give us a little taste of the outside world? Just tell us what's happening in Taiwan. Oh, yeah. Just like, please sure. give us some... I, uh, I had a basketball run today. Oh, uh, what did I do? I woke up. I've been wearing the same clothes for 48 hours, unfortunately. Uh, <laughs> went, went out yesterday, had omakase, and then these aunties got me like super drunk at the sushi bar. And they have these things where they pour all the sake into like a draft thing. And it's just like endless sake. But you can stop me. If this is like No, we want to know. We, stop. We, no, no. Please don't. <laughs> this is like punishment, but it feels good. Yeah. yeah. You want to be life cucked. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. No, I'm, like, I'm watching you with a, a I'm watching my, my food with another man here. <laughs> <laughs> no, so I mean, I ate sushi. Got totally in, in Taiwanese and Chinese, they say guanzhou, like literally just like filling you with alcohol. So I got I got filled with alcohol and then I like passed out, woke up late, and then I went to this lunch and had dim sum, then fell asleep and then played basketball and then ate hot pot and rode around with my boy on a scooter. <laughs> I literally think I'm gonna cool. cry. I mean, he looks so healthy and vibrant. <laughs> He just looks so happy. He looks happy. So it's infuriating. It's infuriating. When it's over, you guys gotta come hang. I will. I will treat you to two weeks of our country. You know, I owe you that. Oh man, I I have not seen happiness in so long. I'm realizing. Um, well, um, I mean, Dave, feel free to to direct this however you want, but I I kind of want to just hear Eddie explain what we're talking yeah. about and, and and sort of what he saw when. You know, he was cruising around on, on Instagram and, and and your response. Yeah, I, I want to start this by saying my first introduction to Dave and Dave's work was that people were telling me about pork buns in New York. And I went, I lined up at Momofuku because I used to live on 12th and 3rd Ave. So I went as soon as it opened and I was really excited. And I remember trying it and I was like, this is very good. The pork fat was dripping and everything. And I remember talking to the guy working there and I was like, yo, you guys aren't going to put the tofu crisp in here. And like, I was asking him like, why is the sauce different? And he's like, what do you mean? Like, it's always been this sauce. And I was like, no, it's like in Shanghai or, or, or Taiwan in the night market, it'd be like this. There'd be a tofu crisp, but there'd be like cilantro. There's like two ways to do it. Right. And he was like, uh, no, I'm not like, this is, this is our pork bun. And I was like, it's, it's very, very good. But then I was like, oh, this is interesting. Like this guy didn't necessarily know where it came from. But I continued to eat at Noodle Bar a lot because, frankly, it was the best pork bun you could get in America outside Roland Heights. Like, you don't get a pork bun like that in North America outside Toronto, Roland Heights, Vancouver. Very, very rare. So I kept going back. But it started to eat at me because people didn't know where it was from. And that's my introduction to Dave. And I just want to say over the years, like I've said stuff. I don't think Dave has ever said anything towards me. So I have to say myself, I've been critical of certain things because I, Dave is so successful that Dave's success has at times eclipsed the history of the dishes that I think inspire some of the stuff you've done. You know, and it's, it's kind of like the NBA. You're an NBA fan. LeBron comes around. Kids the next 10 years, they're not going to know about Oscar Robertson. Yep. yep. And I'm kind of a dude that's like, yo, I, I went back and I'll watch big old tapes. 
you know? And I'll be like, you know, you see like people doing the sham God move now. And then you say sham God and they don't know who it is. I'm like, dude, that's God sham God's move, that pull back cross. And so I'm just, that is my personality. I really value the tie to history because I remember being a kid and just, I always talk about this stuff, got picked on all the time, but my dad would always tell me, you belong to a civilization that's 5,000 years old. We are the first unit of our family in America, born in America. Like we've never been here. And he was like, whenever you get down, just remember that you're part of something that's 5,000 years old. And like, it will be here. It was here before you, it will be here after you. And to like, always stay connected. And that's why I have so much feeling about it. And I mean, I I have to preface by saying it's Dave's success that has created this conundrum for me personally. And then I will also say, as I've been watching Dave's show, like I watched all Dave's show and I've watched since you've met your wife, obviously, like I've noticed without really talking to you at all about it, I just think it's super ill how like you, I think have dove more into your Korean culture and home cooking and like Last three years, I'm just like, I'm team Dave. I'm a fan of Dave, you know? And so then the chili crisp just kind of caught me in a moment. But Mm -hmm. I was like, you know what? This doesn't feel like Dave. To me, I don't know you the best, but I follow you. And I I listen to pretty much everything you do. And um, I always, since like 09 have, just like, you're interesting. And um, when I saw the chili crisp, I was like, okay, this, I don't see it on Dave's Instagram. And I don't see him posting about it, but it's on like Momo Longplay. And since our, our last podcast, I'd like, I'd like to respect the respect and the friendship that we now have. <laughs> and I was like, shit. So I didn't tag Dave. I was just like, I'm going to leave Dave out of this because I think Dave's been doing a lot of really important things for Asian Americans. And like, while I've really tried to like speak out and, and represent, I've always told people, it cannot be one voice in Asian America. We need multiple voices. And, you know, like I have a really good friend here in Taiwan. He, he owns a brewery called Taihu. Guy's name's Duke Wu. I mean, I think he really feels more represented by you than perhaps me, Dave. And I think that is a fantastic thing, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I just wanted to start this conversation by saying, I really, really respect everything you've been doing, you know, in your career. And I think it is important in a community that people have opposing views at times, or even at least ask to understand what the other person's thinking. So for me, I saw the chili crisp and I was like, this to me feels like Ma chili sauce. And I think it's totally fine to make your own Ma because I buy Ma, but I also make my own chili oil and I do it to my specifications, but it takes a long time and a lot of effort. So I always have a backup Ma, and then I have my own chili oil. I'm sure that this spicy, crispy chili oil is like Momofuku's version of, like we'll say in Chinese, tiao wei, right? Like this is the flavor profile. This is the proportion that I like. And so I saw it. I think it's great that people make chili oil. But I was just like, there gotta be a shout out to Lao Gan Ma because it is the quintessential like crispy chili oil. And I just, I really want people to know the history. First of all, Eddie, thank you. I'm honored that you would feel that way. And yeah, we weirdly have a long storied history and we don't need to go into all of that. You you covered a lot of it, but likewise, I just didn't understand how someone could have viewpoints that were so not 
what anyone else would have. And you were so smart and so articulate and you did what you wanted to do. So it was a mix of envy that like, man, I wish I had the freedoms that Eddie had. <laughs> and I had to really spend time trying to be in your shoes and think about who you were and why you were and what the things that you said and the things that you did. And the more I did that, the more I appreciated everything that you were doing. And exactly as you just summarized, Asian American culture, Asian culture in general can't be this monolith. It has to be a variety of things. And that's when I really, you know, and I'll say Shane, I think Shane really helped out with that as well. We had mutual friends that were like, hey guys, you, you guys are more similar than you realize. Um, yeah. So again, like, thank you for this. To the pork bun, and, and before that, it is so crucially important to me to make sure that Asian food gets its representation in every possible way. And I just never even had this conversation with you. You talked about the pork bun. To me, the knowledge of how the story happened, we put in the first cookbook. Yeah. I had never yeah. been to Taipei. And bef before yeah. Noodle Bar opened up, there was no Flickr. There was no website that you could have photographs from Taipei as to what, I don't even know how to pronounce it properly. The, how do you pronounce the Taiwanese pork bun? Oh, gua bao. Gua bao. Gua bao. I didn't know yeah. what that meant. I didn't know what that was. And I had never been to Taiwan until like 2011. And yeah. had I known, I would have said, I don't know if I would have made it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But you know, the story about it is really I'll, cool. I'll be honest. I, I, unless I could have come up with something different. Yeah. And that's all. It's like I would have struggled to find a way to make sure that it was uniquely different. Mm -hmm. So bringing us to the current day, essentially what has happened is Mofugu has developed a, a crunchy chili condiment sauce that they're, they're selling. Um, Eddie, can you, I know you, you just gave sort of a, a lot of the broad strokes of it, but can you maybe rearticulate what you said on Instagram when you saw this thing and, and, and relating it to, you know, Benton's ham and, and that sort of part of it. Cause I think it's really important that people hear what you were saying and, and what it means when somebody does their version of, you know, a sauce that's maybe less well-known like Lao Gama. Yeah. So I actually wrote down a few, this is the first time for a podcast. I wrote down a few ideas before, cause this is just like, honestly, a conversation I, I've been very curious to have for a long time. And so I wrote, I said, we don't have much representation in global pop culture as Asian people. Food, martial arts, and being the villain in news or movies like Oddjob. It's funny enough, I, I wrote down Oddjob and then I popped on and Dave's photo is Oddjob. I was like, dude, amazing. Um, you know, like we're usually Oddjob type villains in films and until recently. And, um, you know, if you live here and, and you watch local TV and film when you live in an Asian country, you realize like we're whole human beings. We're very complex. We belong to these, like, you know, it's basically Asians doing anything, you know, like Asians on rollerblades, Asians flying, Asians on scooters. It's, you can do anything. There's not like a limit. In America, we always feel limited. And for me, when I, I saw the packaging and the branding of the Chili Crisp, what immediately got me was I was like, man, why can't we sell something in America that like keeps the string from 2020 to 5,000 years ago. You know, like I really do think the DNA of where these things come from needs to be in the product in the present. And then I thought about it from Dave's perspective. And I was like, you know, 
the thing that I always have to remember and give Dave credit for and have more complex conversations is that we just fundamentally disagree, but I fully respect like how much we are going to have to bend to like survive in this country. And I thought about this. I said, if your culture does not make money, it dies, period. Right. And for me, I was like, I think Dave and Momo play are going to make a lot of money and they will keep this chili crisp thing going. And it's probably going to hit consumers that don't go to Ranch Market 99 that aren't line cooks because the guys that hit me and the people that hit me after in my DMs after I posted it, they're Asian people. They're people that dated Asian people or are married to Asian people or are line cooks because the culture of line cooks that we go shop at, you know, 99 market, we'll go to, you know, uh, new Asian market downtown. And we know about Ma. This product is not for us. I mean, at least I don't know. I haven't tried either. It may be for us. It may be, you know, the proportions are so good that I, I will keep it in my fridge and use it because to me that I have maybe 70 sauces in my crib because they're all leveled differently. You know, like you need different soy sauces and wines and chili oils. But I thought about it from Dave's perspective and I was like, this is going to bring in a different consumer. And then my biggest concern was like, all right, if I understand and compromise in my mind, cool, package it in a way that like a Karen is going to buy. Do you know what I mean? Like (laughs) something Karen can understand. Fine. But just, I wish that there was like a label or something in the box to be like, yo, this is Lalgama derivative, or this is like any history of chili oil. I don't care, you know, but something. Cause like, even for me, my chili oil, I always tell people I learned from master Yubo, who Fuchsia Dunlop even wrote about in Sweet and Sour Memoirs. And um, Danny Boween went and learned from Yubo. And Yubo is like master in this family tree. And a lot of us come from the tree. And so I don't think that's where this chili crisp comes no, from. No, 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 no. And I've made that sauce with him because he's cooked dinners with us at in LA, right? So, Dude, the three temperature you know, chili oil, right? <laughs> he's amazing. We don't do, you can't, you can't, you can't make that at commercial scale. That's not happening. Yeah. Yeah. We do it at Bauhaus and it's insane. It's, you can only make so much. We always run out. So Eddie, like part of it is, and again, these will be excuses, but there's are going to be explanations over the long term. And you could blame it on a lot of things, not being in an office with other people, having all this other shit going on in the world. But part of it was me having the ability to explain this, not through social media. Because everything you're saying, I have no disagreement with, and I am on the same page. It may be from a different point of view, but ultimately, I'm not Chinese. I'm not Taiwanese-American, but I know that a lot of my Korean heritage comes from that. And that's why it was important to me, because I had nothing to hide about, and I felt very confident in how we got here that I just wanted an opportunity to explain, and at the end of the day, I want more people to know that we made it this way because of our respect of Laogamma, full stop, mm-hmm. you know, added with salsa seca, added with salsa matcha. I don't want to do something much like I just told you. If I, if I knew that we, we might have done a pork bun eventually that was going to find a way to respect Taiwanese food culture and whatever else that we could blend in to, again, be respectful, yet try to do something new, yet make it look like something that might be the same for a multitude of cultures, right? 
and that's just how my brain thinks, whether people agree with it or not. But like we spend a lot of time trying to make sure that if we do something, like it can't be done in a way that we're taking the narrative away. And I understand how people could see that. But of course, we're trying very hard to create a successful business in other ways. But I'm not thinking that if this thing ever becomes super successful, it's not going to hurt Lao Gamma, because you said it yourself, the people that like Lao Gamma are not necessarily our clientele because a lot of, I know a lot of criticism from what I do comes from Chinese Americans. Like I know this because they have the forthrightness to tell me sometimes like, I don't like your food, but I like what you're doing. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I get it, man. I, I totally understand that. Well, can I back us up? Can I zoom yeah. out a little bit here? Because Eddie, you explained this really well, and I don't think that Dave would have invited you onto this podcast if the point you were making didn't really resonate. But can you explain for people, I know it's a dumb question, but what is the potential problem with a company selling a version of Lao Gamma? Yeah, so this is interesting to pull it out and talk about because the other thing I, I wrote down I wanted to like us to talk about is... Um, the number one thing people always respond to most of my posts or thoughts with is, so if I'm white, I can't cook Chinese food. And I'm like, that is not what we are talking about, my friend. So for me, the issue with a big company is this. If you're dominant cultural, and that's usually like a white company or a company is just very dominant in the space, you have the ability to eclipse history and to like wipe out in many ways the work that people did before for us to get to this point. It's not to take away any of your work. It is not to be like, yo, give people bread. But it's like, hey, if you're going to do this, keep that string connected. <clears throat> keep that history connected. And also, like, I think it's very important from my perspective and, and Chinese Americans' perspective is like, hey, if something that is coming from our culture is being sold and being sold by a big company or a company with the power to be dominant cultural, please shine a light back on our community and our culture and where it came from and give other people an opportunity. I really do think it's great when companies that are making something that's not necessarily their culture is like, we're going to donate some money back to one of your causes. Because in, in many ways, we are all in anything we do standing on the backs of giants, right? And like, look, I'm a big fan of Jamaican and Puerto Rican food. Those are cuisines that I just find super, super interesting. I just always try, like when I did Chinese Boys Barbecue, the event with Adidas, it's like we brought in Junior, we brought in Walshi. I, I went to Jamaica, do the full episode. Like I always try to stay connected to the Jamaican people, the West Indian people, like Trini Chris that put me on and teach me things. Because I didn't learn jerk chicken on my own. I learned because I went to Jamaica. And, um, you know, if I were ever to sell Jamaican food, I would definitely donate to schools in Jamaica. I wouldn't take none of the bread. I'll just do it because I enjoy making Jamaican food. Now I'm not saying Momo needs to do that. Like, I think it's very important to respect people and what they think is fair to do. But I think the main principle for me is if you're going to take something, and I'm not saying you're taking, just saying, hypothetically, someone is going to take culture from the margins or marginalized people and bring it to the mainstream. They have the power to do it and they're not from that community, I think you have to give back. I think you have to keep the string attached. I think you have to make people aware of where it comes from and the circumstances. Because the issue is, is that people in the margins, minorities, 
ethnic people, uh, communities. We don't have the power. It's so hard to get to where Dave is. Dave had to be 10 times better than the white dude in front of him to get to where Dave is now. And so did I. But as now people who we cannot deny, like I can't say I'm subcultural. Like my, my taste is subcultural. The homies I, I surround myself with for the most part is still in the streets, subcultural, doing their thing, you know, art scene. But I'm not. It's something that, like I had to deal with. And it's a, it's a funny first world problem you talk to your fucking therapist about. But we have a responsibility as people that are now plugged into the mainstream and dominant culture to not be vampires. And I think not suck on the blood of people in the margins. Again, not accusing of that, you know? So to zoom back in, Dave, you know, it's funny listening to you talk about this, Eddie, because I know it's so interesting because I know Dave feels the same way. I know he has gone through great pains throughout his career to emphasize whenever an idea was directly inspired by somebody someplace else, a technique, a product, a, a dish. And, you know, you look at a Momofuku menu, it says, it lists the providence of all of the country hams. It says, you know, this dish is stolen straight from 1998, Wiley Dufresne, that kind of thing. Yeah. But that was one of the things you pointed out, Eddie, rightly in, in your Instagram post that, Dave doesn't make country hams. He lets the guys in at Allen Benton do it. And then he lists yeah. them on the menu. So Dave, the question for you, I guess, is do you think that the package of chili crisp that Momo sells should also have that notice? Should say this chili crisp is, fr- is inspired by whoever? First, I will tell you there is nothing that Eddie said that I don't disagree with. Or you, Chris, you know that this is what we talk about a lot. Secondly, this is temporary packaging. And I will also tell you that the new packaging that we're working on is going to be so Spartan that it's not going to look like any fucking packaging that anyone's ever seen before. And there will probably, I don't even know how you'll have room for it to put the story behind it. And these are conversations we have had with the team. And we've spent a lot of time and a lot of money trying to figure out the packaging for all the CPG products because so much of what we make is packed with story. And it's gotten to the point where it's like, do you make it like a Dr. Bronner's where there's just fucking shit everywhere and stories everywhere, but it gets lost, right? Or do you make it incredibly Spartan and minimal, which is way more what we do, and then find another way to talk about these things, to breathe life into it in culture where it is something that we leave a trail of breadcrumbs so people will want to learn about it. We're not forcing them to learn about it. And that was the approach that I have always taken. Well, I had an idea because that's what you're doing on your show. Do you know what I mean? Like you're unpacking everything on the show already and the show comes easy to you. But I was very curious because I was like this, all right, how could Dave become like an even greater weapon for change, right? And my thought was this. Restaurants, the responsibility of restaurants is to continue to distribute culture. That's what restaurants do. What you're putting in your body is sustenance, but it's cultural. Restaurants, I see them as bookstores and libraries, the good ones. Do you know what I mean? Hmm. And the shitty restaurants are the ones that are like, yo, read that new John Grisham. Do you, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> you're, you're at least, you're putting people on to, to hits. Do you know what I mean? Like, yo, these are some low-key books. These are some low-key dishes you should read. And I was like, all right, if Dave takes this on, Dave has the power to be New York Public Library for food. And I was like, maybe put a QR code on your sauce 
And that sauce can link to like three minute, five minute video of you talking about the history of where the thing comes from. And then you're distributing the culture. And that's your legacy, dog. You know, like Eddie, we are going to steal that idea and 100% implement it. And it may not happen immediately, but I promise you that somehow, some way. Yeah. I don't even know how we could do. I know we can do that. I'm going to work tirelessly to make sure that we have some component of that education. And if you want to be part of it, talking about it, fine, all the better. But that's how crucial it is to me because this only works. I would works love if- to be a librarian with you, dog. <laughs> yeah, dude, let's do it. And and I mean that. It's like yeah. this was all part of the plan. And a lot of these things, I have to bear responsibility regardless because in my mind, I can make myself convince myself of anything. And at the end of the day, you got upset. And if I upset people from Chinese culture that I, they felt that I was not giving their due respect, I cannot deny you guys that you felt that way. I can only tell you it's not what I wanted to do. In fact, it was truly the opposite. Unfortunately, you're right. I'm in a position right now that if it doesn't unfold perfectly at the moment, sometimes it could feel like LeBron James' de- fucking decision 10 years ago. It just is like, well, that's not my intent to look like a jackass, <laughs> right? Like, yeah, I just wanted to be able to have a story that wasn't going to be stuck on a label, that wasn't going to be so reductive on a social media post because there is so much more to this. And I've been using this idea of like a sourdough starter, like, my job is to feed the starter. That's it, right? And I want to do that. And that's why I wanted you to on this podcast to hold me accountable and to talk about this because my end goal is very similar to yours. My road to getting there may be questionable to others, but I promise you my goal is to get to that goal of wider acceptance and people understanding that this lineage, as you say, goes back thousands of years. And we stand on the shoulders yeah. of giants. And I want to make sure that that gets done, whether it's QR code video. I promise you, Eddie, that this, you know, Chris knows this. We are working on a ton of stuff. A lot of it is educational focus. Momofuku is extension of me. Am I the main decision maker, Momofuku? No, but they feel very strongly the same way as I do. Yes, it's a big monster of a company now. But I assure you that our goal is to make this not just more widely accessible, but to start the conversation so people know a multitude of things. Yeah, I think it'd be really cool, even just the ingredients, like where do dried chilies come from? How are they dried? Like, I think if if Momofuku becomes like the video store or the library for food, I mean, that's that's legacy, dog. Because I mean, like I miss video stores and and. Also, you've already been doing this. It's, you know, Tarantino does the same thing. Like a film nerd kid that watches Kill Bill, he's going to go watch Lady Snowblood. He's going to go watch the Toichi. And it's like, so that is our job as artists and as creators to continue to move it forward and keep the string there. I think it's about us working harder. And I'm down to work with you on archiving stuff and just continue to inform people the history and like how long of a history that like we all belong to because that's the type of shit brings people together, you know? Amen to that. And again, Eddie, I just want to, again, we, I spoke about it. I want to give you a brief rundown because I feel like you deserve it. This chili oil goes way back all the way to the beginnings of Sambar. And when we did the large formats, not only was there Sam sauce, which is Korean, there was a chili oil with some of the large formats, long story. I'm just editing a bunch of this stuff out. Along the way, we've obviously had 
a variety of hot sauces. Like I am privileged to have had a lab for 10 years that they get to make whatever the fuck they want to make. Almost all of it has been fermented products that are condiments from misos to hot sauces and salts and spices and shit like that. So, you know, Chris heard this story. Two other moments that were important. One was we were in Denmark cooking a dinner in MAD and lo and behold, Rosio Sanchez had all these chilies from Mexico and I didn't even know it, but I wound up making salsa matcha with soy sauce and toasted all these chilies. Chris actually helped me make it and I didn't know what the fuck I made, but she's like, oh, this is salsa matcha. And I was like, what the fuck is salsa matcha? I didn't have, <laughs> never heard about that. And I was like, oh my God, that's so crazy to me that this is chili oil sometimes made with like Asian ingredients. I was like, what the fuck? This is wild. Fast forward to when we were filming with Eastside Taco in LA, when we were doing Pastor Tacos, and I had salsa seca for the first time, which is a dry salsa. And it has origins not of Mexico. It has pepita, sesame seeds. And I was like, wow, this is a little bit like a furikake, but there's oil in it. What does it remind me of? This is sort of like a drier version of Laogan Ma. Yeah. And I was like, fuck, man, this is so badass. So much so that we turned it into our dish and major domo that was paying reference to salsa seca. I was like, people need to know more about this dish. And I want to know more about yeah. the history of it. But it's hard because people that have made it have never had the, the voice to tell their stories about how it was made because it's still new. Salsa matcha is a new and relatively recent invention. Salsa seca, relatively yeah. recent invention. It's so, humans coming to the same conclusion, which is like a beautiful thing. Yeah. And that's like, to me, it was like, when I told you, I would never, if, if I knew about Taiwanese bao, I would probably have waited until I found a way to do something, to not say something new, but to merge it in a way that was respectful to all cultures. And we spent a lot of time on this. So we purposely chose ingredients that made it look, could look like salsa matcha, could look like a very oily, very oily, this is a stretch, but in my mind, as I can convince myself of anything, a very, very oily salsa seca, and also could pass as chili oil. And yeah. there's a ton of chili oils out there. Everyone's selling it. So it's like, we're not going to do anything that everyone else is doing. It's got to be our story. And our story is not our story. Our story is going to be a blending of all these other stories that we're trying to do differently, understanding the criticisms, understanding our support and understanding the platform that we have, that it's got to be different. And I will give you this credit too, dog. I got to say this. A lot of times I look at your food and I, I like, I, I've read your recipe. I've read all the stuff. And I'm like, yo, Dave is in many ways creating future food. It's like when, you know, like every three years, there's like a Time magazine cover showing a super like tri-racial quad racial person. And it's like, this is a future person. This is what people will look like in 50 years. That's your food. And I think that's really dope because it's like, after everyone has had sex, it's just going to be, you know, and you talk you know. about future food, you know, like Jamaica is future food to me yeah, because it's got yeah. it all, man. And it's fucking beautiful. And, and that's to me, like the thing is like, I don't want to do something and have I made mistakes in the past? I'm sure. But I think every step of the way, when we take something that is a story that I know is not necessarily mine and could look like someone else's, I think we really do try to take the time to like make it look like something that could entice an audience they may not know, but the story has to be different. It's like leaving a trail of breadcrumbs because I'm happy to talk about this stuff. It is so important to me. 
And we chose yeah. three chilies. You know, Pula chili, Arbol chili, and Japonis chili. All three different kinds of Mexican chilies. We used... We didn't use MSG. Do I want to use MSG? 100 fucking percent. <laughs> Do I want to sell MSG? 100%. Yeah. But like, same point. Not yet. It's going to take some time before we educate people, right? There's another reason why our price point is a lot higher because of obviously different ingredients, but I don't want to compete with Lao Gamma. Yeah. Right? That's another yeah. thing. We use shiitake powder instead. We use red pepper. Sesame seeds was very intentional. Right, another yeah. intentional moment to make it more like a, as a homage to Mexican seca and matcha. So you, you yeah. know we have seaweed, we have coconut sugar, we got variety of umami stuff and shallots and garlic. So, in my opinion, again, like you can criticize me for convincing myself and my team, but we thought that we made something that looked similar, could taste similar, but if you really start to think about it, could taste like a variety of things. One of which 100 fucking percent was Lao Ganma. Yeah. And, and that is a bit of a feature of like cutting edge new American food. You know, it is feels futuristic. It feels like it feels like a Tarantino film, you know, is the best way I can explain it. And I think it's the responsibility of the chefs working in that future space. Like anyone trying to take us to the next frontier, you just have the extra responsibility to explain how we got there, you know, yeah. and that's all. And the other thing I was going to say is, uh, I, I wrote this down. If we think about the global cultural ecosystem, like a rainforest or a coral reef, like this makes sense because the countries and the communities that don't have the economic and military power to survive, they're going to die like coral reefs. It's really sad. Or they're going to get picked apart like the rainforest. And it's like, you know, we can transport that wood and, and make something of it and sell it in our countries in dominant cultural ways. But I think that anyone that's picking from the rainforest and picking from the coral reef, we just have to be conservationists. And that's why I was like, I had the idea. I was like, I wasn't going to come empty handed to your podcast and just be like, blah, blah, blah. Fuck this packaging. Fuck you for not <laughs> shouting out loud. I was like, look, I'm going to come to Dave with an idea. And I was like, I think for all the people that like free dive into the ocean and, and you know, like tourism, it, the most important thing is to contribute to conservation, to contribute to preservation, making sure these rainforests and coral reefs and ethnic communities survive because they need help. Before we go on, let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. Today's episode of the Dave Chang Show is brought to you by Mack Weldon. Mack Weldon makes the most comfortable underwear, socks, shirts, undershirts, hoodies, and sweatpants that you will ever wear. Their mission is to make sure that all of their basics and beyond are smartly designed with premium fabrics and shopping for them is easy and convenient. This is basically all I wear. Since quarantine, the beginning of March, I have basically worn their A sweatpants and their pocket tees all the time. And if you've seen me on a Zoom call or any other kind of video conferencing, that's my uh, work outfit. All of their things are incredibly comfortable. Their polos, their underwear, their socks, and it's just incredibly good product, very comfortable, and I can't recommend it highly enough. Mack Weldon even offers a line of silver underwear and shirts that are naturally antimicrobial, which means they eliminate odor. 
They want you to be comfortable. So if you don't like your first pair of underwear, you can keep it and they'll still refund you. No questions asked. All Mack Weldon products are great for working out and going to work, going on dates, and just everyday life. The folks at Mack Weldon have even created their own totally free loyalty program called Weldon Blue. Level one gets you free shipping for life. And once you reach level two by spending $200, Mack Weldon will start giving you 20% off every order for the next year. For 20% off your first order, visit MacWeldonOneWord.com slash Chang. That's MacWeldon, M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com slash Chang, promo code Chang for 20% off your first order. And now back to the show. Eddie, I wanted to rewind back to something you said when we were talking about just like the various forms of of this kind of crunchy chili condiment, whether it's salsa matcha, salsa seca, or or lao gan ma, and and you know, I'm more of like a rose colored glasses guy than Dave, and I, I really am attracted to that beautiful thing you're talking about about these fundamentally obvious, delicious things that multiple cultures arrive at, if not simultaneously, independently, right? Whether it's, yeah. I mean, the pork bun. I imagine if you gave a hundred people a piece of pork and a, and a piece of bread, 99 of them would wrap the bread around, around the piece of meat and eat it. Yeah. And it's evidenced by every single culture that does that. The sesame seed, which Dave is talking about, sesame seed is an amazing biological story. This thing that Chinese culture feels is a distinctive Chinese flavor. Korean culture especially thinks it's a distinctive Korean culture. African uh, African cultures, yeah. there's there's plenty of cultures throughout the Middle East that find it to be a quintessential flavor of their food. It's all the same flavor, and yet all of these different cultures can can celebrate it and love it in different contexts. And this is the beautiful thing about sesame paste. I cannot believe you brought it up because that is the thing I think about a lot. I like I started to think about like what is cooking? And I was like, cooking is the decision to apply a level of heat or no heat. Mm-hmm. to a product with seasoning. That's it. Mm-hmm. It's the decision is how much or how little heat or none at all. And I was like, that's the first thing you decide is what you're going to eat and cook. The second thing is how much heat to apply. The third is how to season. There's actually nothing else to it. There's, there's, it. there's three decisions that you make. And when you look <laughs> at sesame paste, you're like, how did Middle Eastern people decide to make it like, Lighter, lower temperature, gray, more viscous, more thick. The Chinese one is like a brick of brown shit that looks like it's <laughs> impenetrable and the oil can't be mixed in. But then mm-hmm. in a hot pot, you're like, oh, this is, it could not be any other sesame paste. It could not be. I mean, I think about, I think about it with cilantro too, right? When you eat cilantro on a taco, you're like, this is a Mexican flavor. You eat it on top of a bowl of pho, you're like, this is a Vietnamese flavor. It's just like, it's what you're talking about. And it's like, put this flavor in your mouth and think Vietnamese thoughts or put this flavor in your mouth and think Mexican thoughts, right? These things can go in so many different directions. And I find that to be putting aside all of the the, the very, very real sociocultural questions of how we transfer culture and, and all of that. That's a beautiful thing, man. It's a beautiful thing that we can all independently recognize the value in these flavors. And like you said, and I, I do think, Eddie, if you tell too many people that you're going to bring down the entire cooking industry if you tell everyone that uh, the secret is just how much heat you apply to something <laughs> like it really takes the mystique out of it <laughs> eddie 
you know, this, this is conversations that I have with Chris a lot and I don't smoke nearly as much pot as I used to, but a lot of these <laughs> thoughts that I had in my head were seated literally high out of my mind. And Chris has heard me talk about it endlessly. And I just think that you need to hear my crazy ass, like armchair anthropologist viewpoint on all this. So I personally believe that we all want the same thing, that if you make something delicious, it's a meme, very similar to the idea of a gene, right? It, delicious things want to replicate itself and survive as an idea, regardless of your culture. And the only thing that will prevent it from surviving is stupidity, cultural ignorance. But that idea of people blending together certain ingredients or taking rice and then cooking it this way or manipulating any kind of ingredient, that doesn't have any ownership. Like those are things that want to be together. And if something is delicious, it will continue to survive. And we see that with the chili paste. We see that in tahini. Things can change. And a lot of these ideas were planted when Dave Arnold, who ran Booker and Dax and the, the genius that he is, he actually made a ham museum, bringing us all the way back to country ham years ago. And it blew my fucking mind because he basically said something that was planted with like Jared Diamond and gun germs and steel, basically like left to our own devices, no matter where we are in the world, we're going to make the same shit. And there's a latitude and longitude around the world, a hand belt going all the way from China to Parma to Iowa to Kentucky and Tennessee that you think that over the millennia of human existence, that if you made ham, like if you had pigs on a certain mountaintop in Parma and pigs on a certain mountaintop in Tennessee and Parma, whatever, and you killed it and you salted it, think about all the trial and error. Of course, humans are going to find a way to do that. That's natural. That's evolution. That's progress. It's also delicious because people are going to find out, oh, at this latitude, longitude, humidity, temperature, when we do it over here, it makes the best fucking ham. And the fact that the best hams in the world are made in like a 120-mile like belt around the world tells me that we're all the same. We're all going to figure this shit out. And you could look the same way about grapes or any beverage. Left to our own devices, you're going to figure this shit out. So when you think about it that way, it's like we're not doing anything. Our job is just to help put the shit together. I fully agree with the maxim. Something that's delicious is going to survive. Just like I was saying, if a culture doesn't make money, it dies, right? Delicious things survive, not delicious things don't. And then that's where my big government mind comes in and my kind of like, because I think sometimes in this day and age, like humans are in a way getting in between evolution. And so I start to realize, all right, delicious is always going to win. But then, you know, when you make something delicious, Dave, the first reaction from fans, the media, shareholders is, is literally, how do we replicate this? How do we scale this? And what they do not understand is that they come in and they're like, let's recreate just the parts that we like about it. And that's like taking umami out, taking fermentation out, taking stinky things out. And that's how like they gentrify neighborhoods and gentrify dishes and gentrify ideas is by being like, oh, let's isolate the things we like. And I'm like, you isolate the things you like, that's how you end up with sweet and sour. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, so I think it's just like, what you're doing is fantastic because you keep all the nasty bits in and perhaps put even funkier shit in, right? <laughs> but what happens is people see it 
And, and then, or I mean, it's your stuff and my stuff. And people want to be like, let's, let's take the cool shit. You see so many Asian restaurants, youth cultural. Now, a lot of time when there's a lot of Chinese restaurants since Bauhaus opened, it's like, they literally use our playlist. You know, it's public. It's fine. Use the playlist. They have apple seizure. They have hey song sarsaparilla. They got a pork bun. And I'm like, cool. But like, they're not telling history. They don't have a super diverse set of cooks like from Lafrag City or from Brooklyn or from wherever. And I'm always just like, guys, what made Bauhaus what it was, was not just the food. Like the food is cool. The food is great. And I love it. But it was, it was like that we had tied it to history, that we were so inclusive. Like, I mean, I always read Bruce Lee about how he would like teach Kareem Abdul-Jabbar or anyone that wanted to learn Kung Fu. I would just tell any kid, if you want to learn how to cook Taiwanese Chinese food, like you come learn with us. And I think that's what made us special. Is not, not the, like, you can replicate that bow. There's a lot of chefs, a lot of cooks that can make that. I haven't made that bow in there for five years and it's still the same. You know? Can I ask you both something? Can I ask you, bring this back to the sort of subject at hand, the, the specific subject of consumer goods that are, are drawn from some inspiration and maybe erased. As an intellectual exercise, Eddie and Dave, does, Trader Joe's selling their own brand of sriracha or rooster sauce or some some dominant culture supermarket developing a sriracha knockoff and selling it with very similar quote unquote Asian flavors. Does that in the long run do more good than harm? I think initially, yeah, it makes me mad. But then I think about it as to having La Choy and a lot of these Asian food manufacturers just in America based in Minnesota or somewhere in the Midwest that might have had a token Asian person started then bought by a, a giant conglomerate. I liken that a little bit to the food network. I liken it to a lot of things that takes a good idea and then fucks it all up. And I think you have to go through that cycle to come out the other side because it needs to popularize it. It is part of a story that allows people to have sort of critical mass to the point where then you can be like, no, 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 no. We need to do it this way. We have to see the mistakes that were made to make it better. That's just my opinion. And this opinion can change next week. But right now, this is the opinion that I continue to get back to is I am highly critical and I don't like the fact that people can, without having gone through the struggle, can just do it, right? And it's a long-winded thing, but this is my battle with kimchi. For a long time, I said, fuck you guys. You're a white person. You can't do it. And people don't know that my, my opinion on this has changed over the years. And a lot of white people, and you get the hate, like, fuck you, you racist Chang. You can't tell a white person they can't make kimchi. I'm like, <laughs> you're missing the point, man. Like, yes, I'm saying that. And I wish I could be better communicating it. But what I'm trying to say is you just have to learn to respect it and learn to put in the time. And then for a long time, I've, I don't know why I use the city of Buffalo, but like if if I tell some kid who's starting a restaurant and he puts a tree of kimchi on and I say, I visit it or I see it on social media he's doing it and I say, fuck you, dude, you can't do that. But he wants to learn about Korean culture. He loves Korean culture. He wants to fully immerse himself in Korean culture. It's a little bit like a fucking Marvel comic. If I intervene now and I say something negative, even though I don't want, I want to say something negative, I could alter the course of so many different things. Because the thing that I need to do is what I don't want to do is I need to embrace this person and I need to shower him with as much respect and 
education as I possibly can give them because it's quite possible what I want is a world where everybody has respect and everybody has knowledge for all these things that they may not know currently. And what we need is someone that might be white from Buffalo to be the greatest kimchi maker of all time. (laughs) And I have to hold out hope that this kid might be that person. I'm not saying I always hold myself to that standard, but that's what I try to remind myself. Eddie, I'm super curious to hear your your answer to this, but really quick, can I just reveal the depths, the disturbing depths to which I know Chang's head? Like, I know why you chose Buffalo (laughs) and you don't know why you chose Buffalo. It's because you were thinking about this at a time when Josh Allen, the quarterback for the Buffalo Bills, got drafted and said some terrible, insensitive, racist shit. And you were like, I need to learn to say what's worse ostracizing him completely for something he did or trying to hope that he learns to be better. Uh, right. So that's why you choose Buffalo as your yeah, kimchi. And, and, and you know what? It's funny. I, I, I use that as a benchmark a lot and kimchi in Buffalo. But I also say this with Drew Brees coming out like a jackass and then apologizing for Black Lives Matter. If Josh Allen winds up having a long career, but winds up having the same views of Drew Brees a month ago, of Black Lives Matters, then fuck him. Right. Right. Like, and that was the point was I had this conversation with our producer at the time, Augie, who was African-American and with Isaac Lee, who's Korean-American. And they were both younger and they were like, fuck Josh Allen. And I was like, you know what? That's my initial reaction, too, because he said some terrible things. But he said it when he was like 17, 18 years old, and he grew up in a very Republican part of California. And they were like, you should hold him accountable because... He should know better. I'm like, I know he knows better, but we all make mistakes. I make mistakes. And I've had dumb fucking viewpoints throughout my life, and I continue to do so. And I think what we need to do is to be able to judge a person on the aggregate decisions in their life, and we should hope that Josh Allen becomes the best version of himself, one that is entirely committed to equality and and love and kindness and respect for all people. And the fact that he's going to go to a team that's predominantly African-American, maybe he's going to say some bullshit like, oh, no, 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 like, because he's scared. But I hopefully, you can't force anybody against their will to believe something. They have to do it on their own volition. And that's what I believe. It's like, when it comes to food, I feel like it's the same way. Again, like, I am not patient enough to always hold that standard, <laughs> right? But I, I'm, I'm trying to remind myself that I have to encourage people when I don't want to. I get, like, for me... Do you want me to answer the Trader Joe's question answer first? Answer the Trader Joe's question Josh first. Out? Get into the Trader Joe's and then okay. see where it takes you. My Trader Joe's and my my uh, like Whole Foods thing is, is this. I'm into big government. I'm into John Locke's social contract theory. And my thing is, is shelf space is real estate in the market. Granted, this company is spending money. I don't think this is a government thing, but I think Trader Joe's, Whole Foods, all these places, they should just be smart. If there is a great Middle Eastern restaurant or like brand in your neighborhood, yo, just stock their hummus. Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't want the Trader Joe's hummus is terrible. Like, especially if you're like Trader Joe's in Detroit, you got some of the best Middle Eastern food in the world in your neighborhood, you know? And like, even in Orlando, Florida, there was great Lebanese restaurants, great Palestinian markets slept on. And I'm like, if you're Whole Foods, if you're smart, cut a deal with them, put their stuff in your store. And I, I get it. They make more money doing their own brand. But I think as consumers, if we demand that they localize, regionalize their shelves, I think that is going to make everything better. It grows small businesses. It keeps ethnic culture alive. 
It's actually in the principles, it's parallel to the principles of federalism that like Republicans are always arguing about. Like the way that they argue for like trying to get rid of abortion is by being like, it's federalism. Every state should get its own decision about how it wants to decide on abortion. I'm like, all right, I disagree with you about that. But I'm going to take your federalist fucking bullshit and like federalize this, this fucking shelf at Whole Foods or Trader Joe's. If you're going to sell ethnic food, buy it from someone local or regional, you know, then they can make some money with you too. Yeah. My view on it is this. I think that the hard part about it is I was in Whole Foods yesterday and I made a mental note that the panko breadcrumbs are now next to the Italian breadcrumbs as opposed to being isolated in the, the ethnic Asian part of the store now. Now right? it's just breadcrumbs, yeah. <laughs> now, just <laughs> tiny, tiny victory we got to be included with the normal, the normal quote-unquote breadcrumbs. So I think that the, the Trader Joe's sriracha, the, the Whole Foods soy sauce, that shit, to me, in, in some ways, the fact that they make it, I'll say this, but it has huge caveats. It validates and normalizes these flavors for an audience that's not familiar with it, right? You see these things at Whole Foods and you're like, oh, you know, it's just, it's normal to see sesame oil and, and, and soy sauce now. But going back to something that you said originally, Eddie, in, in your post about this, is this implication that the original version, the Laoganma... Is fine, the, yes. <laughs> I don't want to be normalized anymore. Like, I never right. have. I've always thought... You don't want to be like, sterilized you know, and put on a shelf in, in like, this is like the, the Asian version, the Detroit hummus, that's not clean. It doesn't yeah. meet Whole Foods standards. Right, that's but the it problem. does. It'll be fine. Like you know how sick I've gotten from like Trader Joe's food. You know the sickest meal I got was a short rib at the Standard Hotel. I'm like, <laughs> they supposed to be clean. You got stars and shit, but like I got dumb sick there. <laughs> <laughs> like yo, I I want yo, I got so this is how sick I got eating at the Standard Hotel in the in the meatpacking district. I shit and puked at the same damn time. <laughs> all right, that's how sick I was. It came out both. That motherfucker short rib came out both sides. Pause. <laughs> And then, like, um, but what I was going to say about shit, what was I going to say? <laughs> Chris, you were talking about normalizing. Yes. So this is my thing is I think it, like my mom always said this because when I was like 12, I also wanted to be normalized. Like, I, mom, give me kid cuisine. I was like the fundamental. This is a formative moment of my life. I wanted to have white people lunch. And it's the pilot of Fresh Out the Boat. It's the most important story in the book. The one day I tried to normalize and brought kid cuisine to school, someone pushed me down in the lunch line when I was microwaving my food, said chinks get to the back. And it changed my life. Mm -hmm. It changed my life. And like, I never wanted to be normal again. Mm -hmm. I was like, nah, like, I don't want to ever look like a chink that's trying to be white or trying to be normal or, or whatever. And I was like, I'm me and I got to be proud of it. Yeah. And if I want to eat chicken nuggets, I'm going to eat chicken nuggets because I want to eat chicken nuggets. I'm not eating chicken nuggets because I'm embarrassed to eat chasal bao, you know? Yeah. And I think that's the thing with those shelves and the normalization is I think America's mentality has to be now, and, and just countries in general, even outside of food, if you want to sell something ethnic, let us sell it. Give us your shelf space. Take your money off the top. Everybody could eat. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But it's like, if you want to sell our stuff, do it. Do it with us. Do it our way. Let us tell our story because you're not going to tell our story better than us. Yeah. And I think Americans just generally need to start to be like, look, if I want this, I'm going to get it from the source. You cannot have the expectation that everything's going to be spoon fed and general toast chicken for you. You know what I mean? Like, 
we are done watering our shit down. What you're talking about is something that Dave and I have been talking about a lot right now in the context of Black Lives Matter and the difference between the black power movement and what was sold to us as the civil rights movement. You know, it's integration versus black nationalism, black power, right? And and to bring it even more to more contemporary phrase, you know, I've been reading How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram Kendi. I'm, I'm sure you guys have heard of this book. And one of the sort of foundational tenets of anti-racism is the acknowledgement that no race or culture needs to be improved. <laughs> no culture needs to be brought into sync with another. And that's what you're talking yeah. about here. And I think like, I think that you and I and Dave probably all agree. We don't like meet us where we are. We don't have to come. We don't have to dumb down our shit for you. But I will say this is the central tension right now between generations of, of Asian people, right? I think that my parents are kind of like, no, no, no. I don't want to stand out. Just like, it's fine that the soy sauce is, is a little worse at Whole Foods. <laughs> I'll go to Branch 99 and buy mine. But like, that one's great. That one's great. It's great. It's great. It's great. You know, so that's yeah. at, the, it's at the crux of everything we're, we're sort of unpacking at this moment. So I understand that it was very important that you raised this flag because it speaks not just to how Dave is conducting his business, but man, the fundamental questions we're facing as a, as a society, in addition to uh, many other fucking questions we're, we're wrestling with yeah. right now. I want to say one other analogy for people, just because I feel like the more analogies you give people, they're like, it's just like we're sh we're all on this podcast taking shots at hopefully this lands somewhere with these people. <laughs> you know, it's like, please come to the dark side, you know? But it's like, look at the two-family household. And I, I went and I did an episode for Vice HBO once that never aired. It was one of my favorite things I ever did. But we started to study, why is the birth rate dropping in Japan? And I went and I hung out with women in Japan for two weeks, successful working women. And many of them explained to me, it just doesn't make sense for me anymore to like want a husband or have a kid because the expectation in this society is that once I am married and have a kid, I still have to work, but I'm still in charge of the house. I got to cook. I got to clean. I got to raise the kid. The expectation for the man is that you will just go out and get money, right? And I think that if we think about the white power structure in America, of course, it's analogous to what's going on in homes, right? And white people and also dominant cultural people and rich people generally, and there's a lot of those Chinese ones now, is you have to start to think about. You can't just like build the Whole Foods or build the Trader Joe's or build the big condominium and be like, all right, peasants, do the dishes, raise the kids. <laughs> Fucking raise your family, feed them, wash the dishes, do everything so that their kids can be my customers too. It's like, what? What are we getting out of this? You know? And it's, it's like, yo, do the dishes with us. Share with us. It's like America needs to become a two-parent household or a three-parent household. And what I'm saying is that the people in the 1% just have to realize this is not a household with this uneven distribution of pain and struggle. This is not a family. This is not a country. And I think if we're going to be a country, then do it. And if not, then you got what you got. But don't don't lie to us no more that this is a country or that we have rights. It's fucking bullshit. You know, that's how I feel. That's a, a very appropriate analogy, Eddie, because before you came on, we started 30 minutes talking about helping our partners parent and how fucking hard it is <laughs> and how... <laughs> 
And like, honestly, it's just a shout out to everyone that is a single parent raising their kids because I just don't know how it's fucking done. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's an incredible analogy because it's like, in that way, Eddie, the dad, daddy here is Whole Foods. <laughs> and daddy yeah. is like, hey, it's not my job to worry about that shit. My job is to make money. You know, and that's not how the world works. It's not how a family works. No, that's not a good family. That's, that's abusive, how divorce, though, you know, like, happens. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I grew up in an abusive family. I know how that shit works, yeah, you know, man. I guess yeah, it works like Whole Foods. <laughs> <laughs> you know, do you, do, you, do you ever think that we could ever do a podcast with with a, it would probably have to be a series where Asian American kids, first gen, second gen, talk about the specific kind of abuse that we all lived through. That'd be heavy. Yeah, we we need Brother Cho for that too. <laughs> oh yeah. my God. Oh Woo. my Lord. Heavy. Oh my Lord. Heavy, man. Yeah. That would be tough, man. <laughs> and none of us are even none of us are even Asian women who just spend their whole who get the same shit as us, plus they just get called fat by their moms all fucking day long. Oh, like man. none of us got I mean I got that, yeah. but you know, I am I am fat. So Oh I got I got that at my dad's funeral. With my uncle that I hate yeah. so much, you know, <laughs> he, uh, the only word he said to me, he's like, he's so old and he's on a, he's on like a walker and like his daughter comes and he's like, Hey, my father really wants to speak to you. And I, you know, he's been sobbing and I think it's going to be like, Hey, you know, your, your father was like, uh, you know, I love him very much. I, I go up to him. He's sitting by the casket and he tells me, I told you, you have to lose weight. <laughs> That I'm is sorry, so Dave. fucking Asian. It hurts. I'm sorry. It's like that's, that's fucking. I'm that was sorry, it. Dave. And, then, and then he holds on to my arm and I said, like, I haven't seen you in a while. And I just I just wanted to tell him to go screw himself. And I was like, my dad never liked you so much. So oh, for good Christ. reason. I wanted to tell him that, but I was yeah. like, you know what? I I understand that this is the way it is yeah. for Korean culture, but Asian culture in general. But man, like. It's quite the contrast when we live in America and our, our, our white friends grew up the way they did. Yeah. Hey, so Eddie, it's it's 140 in the morning for you. Speaking of getting fat though, will you just will you take us out with just like give us another little taste of Taiwan right now? What are you doing this week? What are you doing this weekend? What are you looking forward to? Oh, I'm so jealous, man. Really? really? There is a there is a place, a Ruotal Dian, which is basically a stir fry. They call them like hundred dish restaurants. And they do any kind of stir fry you want. And they open at midnight. So Friday, probably going to, you know, kick it with the homies, do our thing, listen to some music, and then go late night out eating in Siling for the, for the stir fry 100 dish restaurant. So I'm excited. What's your, what's your, what's your stir fry? What's your go-to there? Oh man, go-to stir fry dogan rosu is mm. like um, peppers and pork with a little bit of onion, stir fried, soy sauce, salt. I use a little bit of rice wine. I use three different types of chilies. I use gochujang chili because I like the green gochujang chili. It's very, very good in a Taiwanese stir fry. <laughs> and like, uh, I mix that shit up. But that, that is my favorite thing. And then you get like uh, tofu curds in there, the strips of, yeah. of, of preserved tofu. That is the most classic stir fry any kid is going to get. Scrimp, eggs and tomatoes and eggs. That's another uh. really classic one. Hollow heart vegetable. You know, like that's your mom's food. And, and I'm... I mean, that, that's the thing, man. Like, I thought this podcast was really, this is one of my, this is probably my favorite podcast I've ever done because I do think me and Dave are of the same heart and different minds in the funniest ways. Like, 
I'm very into what Dave does. I just am a traditionalist. I just liked, I just, cause I'm into cooking because for me, it's memories. Like I did not have the best relationship with my parents. I have basketball with my father. That's my thing I do with my dad. We may not talk for weeks and we'll just play ball and compete with each other and then not say anything. And then we could watch games together. The thing that I could always do with my mom when we weren't getting along was talk about food or cook together. And we couldn't always talk, but we could play ball or we could cook. And these unspoken things, like that's why I love them. And I think that is why my personal view is always about preserving the, the culture and the family aspect to it all. Like I just think if we think about family in every aspect of what we do and preserve it, it's the world will be better. I think white people will thank us in 50 years. Like they've had to thank us many times already. <laughs> yeah, man. I'm all about Biden Huang 2020 here. Yeah. <laughs> fucking fucking three, three last things I want to ask Eddie. One is on your Instagram feed, you went, I was like, what the fuck is this place? You had the 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 beetle nut with, with Oh my god, the beetle nut places. Holy shit, explain what, that real what quick. What was that place? <laughs> I didn't I didn't even know what it was because I don't want to like misspeak. And but I it didn't was see like, your teeth this, after, man. Yeah, is this appropriate? Like what's going on? So those are those are these homies is uh this is like these two crews out here. TMG is Tamble Gang, and they're like, they're not like a gang gang, it's Tamble Gang, and they're like up north. And then there's a OZS is this other crew. And they're like, they're the rappers here. They're the street kids here. They're the ones that are like really pushing the the subculture. And one of them is a really ill photographer. And he opened up his own beetle nut spot because a lot of the beetle nut places were going out of business and it was something you couldn't get. So he's kind of like doing it in a youth cultural style and more, you know, younger people are coming. And the girl that is one of the beetle nut girls, she a model and she like DJs at the the underground club we all go to on the weekend. So it was just kind of like the crew. It's uh it's oh it's God, fun so in there. And downstairs is like a dark room. So you can like develop photos and it's just like a little like all those little spots in the LES we used to hang out at. You know, like Prohibition. Like I remember Prohibition. Like you pop in like Danny Brown down there, like Kendrick Lamar down there. And it was just like this the Taiwan version. It's just a basement kids kicking it. Eddie I can never claim that I was subculture like you were subculture, man. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you, you'd be kicking it with James Murphy? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, Dave, was, Dave was waiting in line for Broadway tickets while you were, uh, you were watching Kendrick. Oh, come on. Dave was at all the cool shit. <laughs> uh, the other thing is I want to talk about this next time is your discovery that Yakiniku was Korean barbecue. You know that. Yes. There's a deeper fucked up story there. Sushi and Yakiniku, both Korean. Yeah. Both Korean. Man, yeah. we got a teaser for the next episode. What's the last thing, Ching? Um, here's something for us to think about. Because I've had a conversation with uh, a Korean American and a Chinese American. And uh, the Chinese American is like, at least to me, and maybe just to Korean culture in general, particularly with the modern crop of Korean American chefs, how we can maybe take a little bit more liberally, how they seem to be a little bit more popular uh, than other Asian chefs in this country. And it was actually a conversation I had with the late Jonathan Gold years ago because I wanted to ask him, like, why was that? This was a trend like a decade ago when you had Corey, Danny, Roy, you name it. When there's plenty of chefs, whether you're Thai, Filipino, Chinese-American, Taiwanese-American. And his statement was very similar to what I recently heard was that, you know, Koreans are a little bit more free because they lost everything after the Korean War. And Chinese-Americans, as you said from your father— you are carrying on a tradition that is 5,000 years old. 
And I wanted to know if you guys thought about that at all. Is that something we should talk about next podcast or next time we have Eddie on? Is that there are distinct pockets of very real differences in Asian American culture. And I don't know what the anthropological reason is, but Korean Americans seem to be a little bit less tied to carrying on the traditions of Korea, but more happy to bastardize it with anything else. Whereas Eddie himself just described, he's more of a traditionalist, which is, I think, on the surface, a little bit funny because I would never say Eddie is a traditionalist, at least if you look at it from the outside. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I think a lot of people have raised that point. And like, shouts to our friends that have tried to intervene. Like, you know, Tony, number one, has always been like, Eddie, you should really be friends with Dave. Tony was always like, you have no idea. He talks to me about the same things you talk to me about. And it was Tony, it was Shane, it's David Cho. And I'm just glad we, we get to kick it more in a pandemic. Like, <laughs> we've kicked it more <laughs> after Corona than we ever have. It's so fucking funny. But no, what I was going to say is, is, um, I I really gravitated towards Korean culture as a kid and Korean food too. And I would read the history because Korea was the most invaded country in the world, you know? And um, I felt the most interesting culture, the most interesting things came out of struggle and came out of pain. And when I started to eat Korean food, even before I knew the history, I was like, yo, I love this. This is, this is the most edible Asian food on a daily basis. Korean food like just hits the mark. Japanese food for me is a little too minimal at times and missing a little bit of like that soul. Chinese food sometimes you're just like, this is overcooked. Like there's just, there's frankly 17 too many ingredients in this dish. <laughs> Korean food splits the difference. And I think it's very much, in my opinion, I, and as, you know, fake anthropologists, we can never identify like, this is what it is. But my thing is, I think Korean culture has had to be very pragmatic because it's a culture of survival. And when you eat foods that are foods of survival, foods of self-defense, those are the best. It's just like the universe karma, like a straight line to your stomach. It's like, you know, chicken soup from Greenblatt's, like Jewish food, pickled food, you know, smoked salmon. Jerk chicken is a defensive cooking technique that they created so that British people could not see the smoke from the fire. It blessed them with the greatest chicken ever made. Korean kimchi, all the, your guys' food is war food. It's all food of survival and war. And it's like, it's so straightforward. There's not ego to it. It's just like, this makes sense. This is delicious. This must survive. And that, that's what I find interesting about Korean food. I appreciate you saying that to Dave, Eddie, but man, one of us has to still rep here and it's Chinese food still number one, man. Chinese food. <laughs> Still number one. Listen, okay. when you're don't, number don't one, you gotta be here, gracious. Man. What are you doing? What, what have I been saying this entire podcast? When you're number one, you gotta be gracious. I'm just doing my duty. You, it was unspoken. It was unspoken that Chinese food is. I was just like, let me compliment you on your cuisine. Thank you very much, Chris, Eddie. This is in China. We say we, okay, we have to give you okay. face, Dave. I apologize for Chris's sentiments. You know, the most edible cuisine in Asia to me is curry. <laughs> Thank you. All right, man. Eddie, Thanks, dude. I appreciate it uh, coming on and all that you shared with us, man. Thank you, man. 
hopefully you enjoyed that conversation with Eddie. Go out and, and buy Lao Gan Ma. Research Salsa Seca. Research Salsa Matcha. Research the history of the chili pepper. And there's an f- amazing story. Maybe we'll, we'll get uh, someone to talk about that. That long story of how the chili pepper sort of cross-pollinated all over the world. But um, I think Eddie's idea of having some some link to educate consumers as things become more mainstream, as Momofuku becomes more of a, a place where we start selling stuff, because that's certainly a focus moving forward is to be more on the consumer product good side. And again, we've had conversations about this in the past. We've been working at this a long time. And, you know, it's just unfortunately coincided with the coronavirus pandemic. So a lot of our messaging, it's all there. It just, not happening as quickly. And I think the idea of maybe having a QR code or some link, we're going to do that most definitely. Uh, I think it was a fabulous idea. And again, thank you, Eddie, for preparing so much for this uh, podcast today. But in the meantime, please research all of those things. And the more you have knowledge about food and the things that you're eating, that variety is important, but knowing where your food came from and why things are a certain way. But um, I'm not sure exactly when the Momofuku Chili Crisp is being launched. I think it's this month. I'll get back to you with more information, but it's probably on the website. But don't just buy the Momofuku Chili Crisp. Buy Laoganma if you haven't had that. You should have that first, no doubt. But this is a very different thing, our Chili Crisp. It's something we're very proud of, and uh, we think it's delicious. And again, this Venn diagram, it like touches all of these things, and that's very important to us. But... um, Man, I, I hope we have Eddie on. I, I hope we're, we, we are somewhat successful getting Eddie his own show one day. The world needs to hear more about what's happening. And, and who knows, man, maybe we'll wind up in Asia too. But um, in the meantime, stay tuned for our next podcast this week. Give us five stars, however you rate this podcast. iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher. If you write in a question on our iTunes page, you can give us five stars. That is quid pro quo for us to answer your question when we do in a mailbag. And that's something that we're going to try to do more of. Or you can email us at askdavidmajordomomedia.com. Appreciate it. As always, guys, thank you so much. 